With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. So the past few months, I've sort of been half doing an experiment. Uh, Sometimes people have wondered what I've been up to because I haven't posted as much on social media. I haven't written as much. I haven't emailed as much. And... I basically, I was felt overwhelmed by social media. And this is not just in the past few months, but for the past like 11 years. But particularly during this pandemic, early on in the pandemic, I felt for the first time in 10 years, it was important to read the news because I felt that the news was so wrong most of the time. I wanted to almost translate it so that people wouldn't would understand what the headlines were saying, why the headlines were wrong, or why some of these articles were wrong or biased. And I'm talking particularly the ones about the coronavirus or the economy or whatever. So I started reading the news a lot more. I started getting on social media a lot more. I was doing podcasts every day, which I might get back to. But I feel like I got a little burnt out then for the first time in a long time on social media. So I completely stopped social media. And that sort of by almost by accident led to me stopping email. Not 100% stopping email because you have to respond to some people. But I very rarely responded to a single email. You know, I'd go a week at a time sometimes without responding to emails. So A, I apologize if you were on the other end of that, but it was an experiment and I've been getting back in touch with people. But I'm so glad I talked uh, today with uh, Cal Newport, who wrote a new book called A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload. And I found that I was much more relaxed and the things that were bothering me, a lot of things stopped bothering me. And so... Cal, of course, is all the data. I just have anecdotes, but we have a great conversation about this. Tune in and uh, perhaps on another podcast, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the burnout I experienced that kind of led to me taking a break. And it's important to take care of yourself if you want to be successful. And a world without email might be the key to that. But let's hear from Cal. You could automatically write programs. Which uh, which theorem prover were you using? Which uh, were you using? What are these things called? Something VN. Well, I, I don't remember. There's these like formal specification languages, right? Yeah. So this was uh, this was a long time ago. So I don't know if these things even exist now. But there are two languages for this: uh, the calculus of constructions and Nupril out of Cornell. Okay. You know, these were all derivatives of like the lambda calculus. So. Um, which is yeah. which is the real one-to-one relationship. Sure. Church, Alfonso Church. Yeah. That's great. Well, we should do a whole episode just talking about, yeah, 
formal specifications approved. We could talk about the decidability of theorems. We could do great. We'll do a whole theory podcast. We'll get your your, your listenership down to zero, and uh, my work here will be done. <laughs> what? Um, actually, we could start. We could start recording because this is this is fun. Yeah. Sure. Um, uh, what did you study? Undergrad computer science. Dartmouth. And when I went to grad school, I was in the theory group at MIT. So I was, I was doing more of the, the useless type of computer science that we were just talking about. Actually, my PhD thesis, I didn't do this really smart. Uh, typically, people take work they'd already published. And they're like, okay, let me put this into my PhD thesis. But I was bored with it. So I was like, well, let me just do something from scratch uh, just for my PhD thesis. So I sort of did it from scratch. It had to do with distributed algorithms for different models of wireless networks. I gave this sort of formal specification framework for comparing and building on various channel models. It was a pretty insider baseball stuff, but but basically I was a distributed algorithms guy. I studied under the woman who wrote the textbook on distributed algorithms. You would think that would have like some practical use, like you could start a company or whatever. Well, so there was distributed systems, <laughs> which was where, like, how do I actually build Facebook? And that was really valuable. Uh, what I did was, it was more like navel gazing. It was, let's Let's abstract away this distributed problem into a mathematical statement and then spend a year proving that this thing was impossible. Uh, an impossibility result that, that quickly goes away once you add in any assumptions about the real world. So I was a real specialist in proving things impossible. Or there was no solution that could ever, ever beat a certain bound. I really love those type of results because they're intellectually stimulating, but it really would put you down... Uh, these alleyways that got farther and farther from the main thoroughfare of practical computer science. So what got you into, you know, the stuff that we've covered the last time you were on the podcast, which was many years ago now, and then and now this one where, you know, we're going to talk about your your new book, A World Without Email. And the last time uh, you were on, we talked about your book, Deep Work. And also I've been following your stuff on, on ultra learning, the stuff that you're doing with Scott Young, who's been on the podcast a couple of times. And that that's an area that I personally am interested in. In fact, I just... I just wrote a book myself on some of the concepts of ultra learning. But uh, what got you down this road of basically shitting all over email and social media and stuff like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, and I had a, a feud with Mark Zuckerberg or something like that, right? <laughs> it goes back. Um, it, you know, it's an interesting question. I had written, so the first four books I wrote had nothing to do with technology. So I started writing books as a college student. I was writing like student advice books. I was blogging about student advice. At some point as I was transitioning from grad school into academia, I wrote a book about career advice. So good they can't ignore you. Uh, it was saying like follow yeah. your passion is yeah bad advice. Uh, none of that had anything to do with technology. And it was after I was a professor. So I was a professor at Georgetown and I was thinking what I wanted to write. And that book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, you know, it had this idea that, oh, getting good at things is like a fundamental currency with which you construct or acquire really good traits in your job that like skill was foundational to actually building passion for your work. And so there's this follow-up question, uh, how do you get good at things? And it was there that I was looking around at all my training at the theory group at MIT. And it was clear to me like, oh, if you're doing intellectual things, there's a real value to focus without distraction. And, you know, that's what led to deep work, which was saying like, hey, we should be careful not to undervalue focus. But then you have to ask the question of why are we having such a hard time focusing? Why would we make it harder to focus at exactly the same time that it was becoming more valuable? And all of those answers led back to technology. And so it really wasn't until deep work came out that 
I, I found myself, my thinking and what I was writing about was just completely intertwined with trends and technology in our personal life and work, uh, which was fortuitous because as a computer scientist, it actually makes sense for me to be writing about the impact of tech and culture. And so once I started working on deep work is when I started to also start thinking deeply about tech and its influences and its side effects. It's interesting because, you know, if you look at, I, I always sort of feel there's a lot of literature on flow. So you probably read the the book. I'm, I'm sure you read the book Flow by McCallie. Chicks at me high. Yeah. And so a lot of the a lot of the stuff on flow, like for instance, by Stephen Kotler and, and other people, focus on the physical sorts of flow. So if you're if you're mountain climbing and you get into this flow state, it, it increases your performance, which is really important if you're risking your life. But there's this intellectual flow like that that you engage in when you're let's say doing art or writing or computer programming you get into this flow state that's more in the mind and then yes i think there's many results any interruption at all just throws you off by at least you know it takes you out of flow for at least like a half hour some some arbitrary number like that i forget the exact numbers this is related to what you're saying that in order to really do deep work, you can't have any, you know, the kind of intellectual work that gets into a flow state where you have, you know, supposedly six X, the performance and productivity, you can't afford any interruption. And yet we're always being interrupted by either email or social media. And in fact, you know, these things are often referred to as addictions. And I agree with that. So yeah. I'm I'm just stating my own story, and then we'll we'll, we'll I want to get into your book, A World Without Email, and that'll overlap a little bit with with deep work as well. The past three or four months, I've basically been on a social media and email fast. Like there's some days, nice. some days, even on during like weekdays, where I'll go the entire day with no, no without looking at email, without doing any social media, and uh, and sometimes I've and I've basically gone three and a half months now with almost no social media. And it's hurt me a little bit and it's helped me a lot. Like it's hurt me in the sense that I'm no longer distributing, you know, work across my normal media for uh, distributing like writing and so on. But at the same time, I'm not sucked into these, you know, nonstop meaningless discussions and emotions and so on that occur on social media. Like you get involved in a conversation on social media and you think it's real, but it's actually not. And you only realize that when you stop conversing on social media, that it has nothing to do with your conversations and relationships in real life. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is one of the, the single most important insights from neuroscience that is relevant to the world of work that is absolutely ignored, which is context switching's killer we really underestimate the degree to which if you take your attention from one target and you move it to another target that's unrelated or particularly distracting, such as an email inbox, which is a cognitive nightmare because you are exposing yourself to communication from other human beings that requires a response and you don't have time to respond to them all right now. It's a cognitive nightmare. You try to come back to whatever you're doing, there is a massive cost. Like that context switch creates a huge pile up neuronal speaking, I don't even know that's a word, but in your neurons and your ability to actually think plummets. And it's a, it's a really big deal. Context switching uh, is a killer cost. So if you set up your work such that, okay, you have to constantly tend, let's say, communication channels or self-impose, you're constantly tending uh, social media because you're trying to see if like 
the democracy is crumbling today, or if you're about to die from a virus, you know, or whatever could be going on. Uh, either way, it's basically the cognitive equivalent of saying, like, I'm going to keep a bottle of whiskey here while I work and take a shot every 45 minutes, right? You're having a similar effect on your ability to think. I just don't think people realize that. I think we, we, we learned in the early 2000s to not purely multitask. Everyone thinks they're really great because they don't keep three windows open at the same time. But we didn't realize that all of the cost is still coming from I jump over to my inbox every 15 minutes. And when I say 15 minutes, I'm being generous. Actually, once every six minutes is more the average for the American knowledge worker. Uh, it significantly reduces our ability to think. And as you've probably experienced in its absence over the last month, it makes us miserable. Our brain, it gets anxious and run down and unhappy when you keep switching it back and forth between these different contexts. So like if there's, if there's any idea from science that the world of work has been ignoring, but could get a 10x improvement if they acknowledged, it would be that. Design how your work happens in such a way that you minimize the need for context shifting. Right now we do the opposite. Right, and, and one way to explore this is to look at what are the benefits of both social media and email. So one question you can ask is, has anyone really advanced their career because of what they did on social media? And the answer in some cases is yes. Like for instance, that woman, Sarah Cooper, who was doing those imitations of Donald Trump, uh, and now she has a Netflix special and she was yeah. posting it all on TikTok or Instagram or whatever. So that was good for her. So some people who become like Instagram influencers or YouTube influencers and they get paid to do that, that there's certainly a benefit to their career. But for, for the average person, let's try to think of what are the benefits that in your research that you've seen from both social media and email before we get into the disadvantages? Yeah, well, uh, they're very different, even though they feel similar, right? So when it comes to email, like one of the big ideas in the book is the role email plays in many knowledge work organizations today is that we have built up these workflows. I call it the hyperactive hive mind. But yeah. basically, we've decided the way we are going to organize our work, like the way we're going to identify and assign tasks, review tasks, or whatever else, is we're just going to have this ad hoc, unstructured, low-friction communication, like through email or through Slack, is all the same as far as I'm concerned, right? If that is the fundamental way that work is organized and coordination happens in your organization, you have to be on email all the time. Which is why, you know, when you just simply say, oh, you should use email less, or we should have an email-free Friday, or, you know, just check batch your email. Just only check it once a day or something like that. When you're trying to solve the problem at that level, you're never going to succeed so long as the underlying fundamental workflow in which your organization runs is back and forth communication. So like one thing I argue all the time is email is almost certainly very important to what you do in your job right now. When we get to the disadvantages and how we fix it, just a little TLDR, we're going to have to go under the covers and replace how we actually organize work. If you don't replace it and just stop using the tool, you're in trouble. Social media, I'm, I'm much less generous to. I think you're right. There are people who legitimately, their job is to be an influencer on social media. That's an incredibly narrow band, an incredibly narrow band of the population. Then there's a, a slightly larger band of entrepreneurs who, if they use social media properly, gets an epsilon boost to their marketing and awareness. But again, this epsilon is on epsilon top like marginal. Mm -hmm. So you have like the, the uh, think of it like multiplying a small term against the overall value you're creating by how valuable is the stuff you're creating? How good are you at what you do? That determines the, the rough gross oversized shape of your value and market. If you're really good at social media, then maybe you can boost it a little bit. But you can't 
quadruple it or something like this. So I think there's this whole group of people for which there's a real tension. They're getting some benefits, they're getting some costs, they're about in balance. And then for most other people, it's really just uh, you're a cog in the social machinery, machinery factories, right? Like it's, it's, a, it's a distraction. They push your buttons. It has a statistical profile view. It knows what to show you. Uh, it, maybe it helps you avoid having to confront your own thoughts or problems in your own life or boredom, but it's uh, a net negative. So it's a very small number of people make a great living on it. Large group of people have a sort of roughly balanced cost and benefits. They run a business to get benefits to get cost. And then for most other people, it's probably strictly on the negative side of the ledger. Right. And But you, you used an important word earlier, which is replace. And let's take the case of someone who is not overwhelmed by email at work, but is still feeling uh, an ad- addictive quality to email. And you, you talk about this in the book. Some people check their email every minute even. And, and I think the average was, I forget what you said, every six minutes or every three minutes. And some, some abs- absurd number. And it's the same thing with social media. I'm, I'm going to lump. I'm going to keep lumping these in together for a while because there's there's some people who communicate primarily through messaging on social media, and so, and you know particularly younger people don't use email as much as let's say an, a slightly older generation does. They message on all the different platforms, but I don't think you can reduce the addictive quality of this by stopping cold. I think you have to replace. And, and then there's the further issue with what if you have to use email for work on a very regular basis all day long. So, so the first issue is we're just using email and social media too much, but it's hard to just stop cold. It's like this dopamine addiction and you can't really just stop. It doesn't really work. Yeah. Well, I mean, let, let's make this, this division the, the, the clarify the conversation. So um, when we're talking about social media, let's separate out professional communication over social media. Like, oh, this is how I'm um, getting in touch with people or organizing or collaborating with people versus consumption. Like I want diversion and distraction. So the, the diversion and distraction piece of social media, the I'm on TikTok all, TikTok all afternoon, that's like in the social dilemma documentary territory. That's where you have services that are being engineered to be addictive. Uh, when you're using social media from a consumption, entertainment, diversion, distraction perspective, that's where you have to be worried about all those social dilemma issues of, I'm using this way more than I should uh, because it's engineered to do that. And now let's lump in, and I think this will be helpful, let's lump in using social media to communicate professionally with email like you're doing. And so now what we can focus in on is, let's call them just like digital professional communication tools. And here, I think you're absolutely right, and this is the core of the book, is that replacement is the key, and it's what we haven't been talking about. So we don't realize the degree to which we implicitly acceded to this idea that the best way to organize work in a digital age is with a constant ad hoc, unstructured back and forth conversation. These tools made it possible in a way that used to be impossible once you had an organization beyond a few number of people. But there's huge cost to doing that. And that if we're gonna solve the problem, you have to say, how are we going to work instead? And I think it's the, the failure to ask and answer that second question is why we have largely failed to sidestep any of the major negatives of this sort of constant business communication that we all face. And you talk about these platforms in your book, but to some extent, the development of very structured communication tools like Slack, where you know the communication is organized around projects and work groups and so on, I think was an attempt to structure email communications a little bit better, but your point is it doesn't really work that well. 
Right. So, so I wrote this article for The New Yorker a couple months ago. Uh, once Slack was acquired by Salesforce, or Salesforce said they intended to acquire Slack, I, I wrote a piece for The New Yorker basically reflecting on Slack. And my, my thesis of that book is that Slack is the right tool for the wrong way to work. So my, my claim in that article, and, it, and it's echoed in the book, is that basically when email came along, we stumbled backwards into this way of working, what I call the hyperactive hive mind, where we just, everyone just send ad hoc unstructured messages. We'll just figure things out on the fly with messages. Uh, your inbox is where everything comes in. Email wasn't really meant, the tool was not really meant to keep up with so much communication from so much different people. So Slack was a way to come in and say, well, what's the best tool for the hyperactive hive mind workflow? In other words, if the way we're going to work is just constant back and forth, ad hoc, unstructured messaging, what's the best tool for that? And so my conclusion is we have this love-hate relationship with Slack because you know if your organization runs with a hyperactive hive mind, Slack is a slicker tool for doing that. So that makes us happy. But that general way of working where we just constantly communicate uh, is terrible for our brains and that makes us miserable. And that's how we end up with this weird relationship. But won't that reduce the email communications with outside people like, oh, my, my, my mom is emailing me in the middle of the day. Since that's not work-related, it won't appear on Slack. So Slack does seem to solve kind of the random emails that also, you know, permeate the day. Well, that problem is more easily solved by just, you know, you have your Gmail address and your work address. Uh, but what but what it did solve is a few things is it's much better for group communication. CC was a clunky way to have a large group of people uh, interacting with each other. It also solved, and this was a big one, the piling inbox issue. Like I get into this, the, the psychological distress that is caused by knowing that there is an inbox that is filling in the background and that every 10 minutes you're away from that inbox, there's more messages piling up. Slack helps reduce that because it's synchronous. So if you're not there on the channel, you can't really have messages pile up. People have to wait until you're there. So that was a really key problem it solved. And also it was searchable. So all of that was good. The bad is, is that it increased the velocity of communication. So the amount of times you communicate, the amount of times you're servicing communication got even higher. So that the, the core problem of the context switching, the catastrophic context switching, that got amplified in Slack. So that's why we have this love-hate relationship. It made some things about email being used to implement the hive mind. It made some of the big issues there better. But then it took the core issue of that way of working, which is the context shifting, and made that even worse. And so people don't know how to feel about it. So they spend billions of dollars for the company and at the same time, curse its existence. Yeah, so so let's talk solutions. Like, what what can I do? What can I do? And again, this book's called A World Without Email, so we're specifically talking about email, but I'm also concerned about social media and where that can go or will it go if we're going to solve this problem. Right. Well, that's right. I mean, the title's World Without Email, but what I really mean is a world without that hyperactive hive mind workflow, where all work just takes place with ad hoc, unstructured messaging. So my pitch is that world was birthed because of the arrival of email. There are now other tools that help service that world. So we can, we can throw these all uh, into the same category. My core argument is you can't tackle this with norms and habits and hacks and tips as long as the underlying workflow says the way things happen, the way we collaborate, the way we coordinate is we just message back and forth. As long as that is the only way you have to organize your organization, you are going to have to use whatever tool it is, email or Slack or social media DMs or whatever you're using, you are going to have to use it all the time and it's going to make you much less effective. And so what I'm all about is replace the hyperactive hive mind with better 
more specific, bespoke, optimized processes and workflows for the specific things you do as a knowledge worker. Be very clear. Here is a particular thing I do that creates value. Here's how information comes in. Here's how information goes out. Here's how we coordinate ourselves to get this done. Once you have specific processes, you can optimize them. And once you start optimizing them, the number of this sort of context switching and communication that's required can be drastically reduced. And when that happens, the value you produce is going to drastically increase. So I'm all about fixing the underlying workflows so that email is no longer something you always have to be checking. So let's let's take an example. Like let's say someone's a, a marketing manager at Procter and Gamble, or let's say someone does accounts receivable at a doctor's office. Okay, they get emails all day long. Like I, I don't even know what emails the average person at these jobs gets, but like what describe a scenario and then how you would solve it. Well, if you're in like a, an accounts receivable scenario, this is a very structured workflow. Uh, it's easier to just have people send you emails, but this is actually a pretty easy case because you could very easily have some sort of process that's deployed in that office where whatever it is, like you you move the contracts into this Dropbox file, there's two times a week, and I don't know this well, I'm just kind of making this up, but there's two times a week where uh, you go into this, you take all the pending contracts out of the Dropbox file, you process them through your system, the finished, the finished contracts go into this file. There's a call on Wednesday morning for a half hour where, or, or you have a shared document where any questions you have are, are put in. You could systematize that job such that there's basically no email, ad hoc email involved in these, these whatever they are, contracts coming in and getting signed and registered and, and, and filed away. More complex, let's say you're a marketing manager. So you have like a team that you're managing, for example. You have a team, you have vendors, you have contracts and so on. Well, each of these things, first of all, you want to handle differently. So like one of the case studies I give in the book is, is a UX design firm, and they completely changed their client communication process. They said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Uh, once a week, we have this call. It's pre-scheduled where we check in. Here's how things are going. What questions do you have? Crucially, right after that call, we will write down everything we committed to doing during that call, and we will send you a copy of that so you have it in writing. It turned out... That was all the client needed. Like if they have if clear expectations about what's going on, they don't feel like they need the need for lots of sort of ad hoc communication. Uh, if you're managing a team, a big idea that comes up in the book a lot is tasks should be much more transparent. There should be a board inspired by what software developers do, for example, where you can see here's what the team is working on. Here is who is working on what. Here is the status of these things. And now we can like much more effectively stare at this virtual board we can do it synchronously, just like software developers you know, do. We all log in on Zoom or whatever for 20 minutes. Who's working on what? What do you need? Okay, let's check back in again at the end of the day. So just by making who's working on what transparent, now you can have a lot more structure. So, I mean, these are just examples, but it's all about what are the different things we do and how do we actually want to do these things that doesn't necessarily require lots of messages. And my example is the thing you should try to minimize when optimizing your knowledge work organization is context shifts required to actually finish a task. How many times do I have to, for example, receive and send another email to accomplish this goal? And you want to design processes that minimize that. Just like if you were building a car assembly line, you're trying to minimize you know, how many man hours it takes to get from raw parts to a built car. We should be thinking about minimizing context shifts. Once you start thinking that way, there are hugely innovative examples over how you can start running your organization. So how does the problem start? Because take a company of computer programmers, for instance. It's not like every task takes 
three minutes and then you have to like look at your email for the next task. Like you say, you, you, you get a task at the beginning of a week and it probably will take a week or more to finish that task. There doesn't need to have nonstop communicating in terms of transparency. If other people want to see what you're doing, they can, you know, use, there's plenty of tools so you can see what's the status of this project and how's the programmer doing. And if the programmer's an okay at their job, you won't really need to follow up with, Hey, uh, what's with an email that says, you know, Hey, what's going on? You should do this, 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 like, so how does the problem actually begin? So when you say the problem in this instance, we're talking about a big increase in what you're calling context shifts, yeah. but just essentially interruptions from email. Like you're asking, how do we get there basically? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, so one of the things, one of the things I argue is uh, by accident that one of the, the, the interesting thing, if you go back and I did this, like, let's, untangle the story of the rise of email. So, you know, I spent a lot of time in like the New York Times business section archive in the 70s and 80s, like just watching the technology get mentioned more and more. I, I talked with researchers who, who in the early 90s and late 80s were the very first people to think, how can we use computer networks to make work more efficient, right? But so really tried to study, how did we get to where we are today? It's largely accidental. Now, in the, in the philosophy of technology, this is called technological determinism, but basically the argument is that the very presence of the tool, so the very presence of very low friction digital communication changed the way we worked in a way that was emergent. No one decided it was a good idea. No one sat down and said, this would make us more effective. There was no Harvard Business Review article that was like, if we could just communicate 100 times a day instead of 20, we'd be more energetic. It just sort of happened. Once we actually had this tool around, I, I give an example. Uh, there was a study, really cool, where they, this was a Gloria Mark from, from UC Irvine. Uh, they went to a company and said, we're going to take like a dozen people in this company and for one week, we're going to take them off email. Like no preparation, just to see what goes wrong. <laughs> they wanted to study the role of email by seeing what goes wrong when you take it away. And, and the, the researcher was telling me more recently that there was this particular subject in this study who had been bothered by his boss. It really annoyed him, but he had to set up this lab a few times a week. They did experiments in this company and his boss would email him with all these urgent things while he was setting up the lab. And during the week where this guy was allowed to not use email, he was forcefully taken off email. The boss stopped bothering him while he was setting up the lab. But what made the story really interesting is that the boss's office was two doors down from the lab. So all the boss would have to do to bother him would be to walk seven feet down a hallway and open the door and be like, hey, Bob, can you do whatever? That little bit of friction got rid of all of those small tasks, all those things that was making this guy's life really miserable, which just underscores that when you take the friction of something down to zero, really weird things can happen. You can get feedback loops and things can spiral out of control. So my contention is that the, the hyperactive hive, where everyone's just talking to everyone all the time, it's largely accidental. It's like no one thought it was a good idea. No one studied it. It just emerged haphazardly in a distributed fashion once these tools were available, which is why I think it's completely reasonable to step back and say, well, do we like this? Is it working? I think we are way too quick to, to just say, I guess this is what work means now. You know, let's invent Slack. I guess that's what we're doing. <laughs> we're just, we're just going to communicate all the time. Uh, we're too quick to accept that. And if we step back and put some perspective, we see, I think it just emerged. And I get, there's a lot of dynamics for why it emerged that I get into in the book, but that's the summary is it emerged on its own as a way of working. It did not have our best interest in mind. It's not the best way to organize knowledge work. We have to move past it. 
But now a lot of people are working remote because of, you know, this pandemic has accelerated this cultural trend of remote work or self-motivated work or uh, lifestyle entrepreneurs where you have somebody who's involved in a bunch of different activities to have different income streams. And how can they manage their process better? Because they're using email for, let's say, work on five or six different unrelated tasks with different teams. Plus they have their social emails. So what, what kind of, uh, you know, habits should these people develop? Well, so over the summer, I wrote this big piece for the New Yorker on remote work because, you know, obviously everyone was thrown into remote work because of the pandemic. And so I went into the history of remote work and, uh, and what to expect in the future and how it was working now. And one of the big arguments I had in that piece is that the more structured and thoughtful your underlying processes and workflows, the more effectively you're going to be able to work remotely. It's why like the one industry that had has had very little trouble going remote, and in fact, were already largely remote before the pandemic was software development. Why is that? Because software developers, for other reasons, have these incredibly structured approaches to how they work. They use these agile project management methodologies where there's task boards and you're using Scrum or using Kanban or whatever it is, right? They were already very structured about how their work happens. They had no problem going remote. There's huge software companies that already uh, have been remote. And so that was one of the big conclusions I have is that if you're working remote, if you don't have those ad hoc productivity heuristics you get in an office where I can grab you or talk to you in the hallway or we can just see each other's face in the meeting hall, when you get rid of all of that, the more structure you have, the better. So I think a, a silver lining, I mean, this was the conclusion of that article, is that a silver lining of this forced movement to temporary remoteness is that I'm hoping that it's going to force a lot of organizations to actually get their act together about, we need better processes and workflows than simply, I have an email address, you have an email address, let's just rock and roll and figure it out. So the more structured you are, the better. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, 
than you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of en- entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What about, though, the addictive quality of email? So, like, I, I work remote and I work on a bunch of different tasks. And often I'll be working on one task, but then something completely unrelated you know, from another project I'm working on will send me an email and, or a friend will send me an email and I respond. I have to kind of, you know, shift focus. I, I context shift, as you say. So, so there's like this addictive quality where, you know, it's hard for me to structure because the one thing about having multiple jobs or tasks is nobody down any one silo cares about your work in the other silos. And I don't say this in a mean way. It's just, it's not their business. So if, like if I'm working on a book and I'm working on a podcast, the people, my, you know, editors of my book or the people I work with on the book related projects, they don't want to hear about like, oh, well, I'll get back to you tomorrow. I'm working today on podcast stuff. It's not there. Yeah. They don't care. And so they want their emails responded to. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, change the processes, right? So, so like with, with my, my book publicity I'm doing now, uh, because I, wrote this book, I was like, okay, I should probably have a lot of processes for my publicity team because this whole book is about processes that avoid back and forth, you know, emails or this or that. And so um, like for podcast interviews, there's a process I set up 
with the publicist I work for. We have this shared document. The details are less important, but the goal of it is we don't just send emails back and forth, right? Uh, I check this document once a day. I answer questions. I give times. I schedule things. I move things onto my calendar. It's very predictable. It creates one context shift. I spend longer when I'm in there, but it's one context shift per day. All of the work happening to schedule podcasts without that process would probably generate seven to 12 context shifts back and forth throughout the day. So it's like a drastic improvement uh, to the cognitive footprint, you know? So the more the more you actually have processes for this type of work, here's how I want to do it. For this type of work, here's how I want to do it. You can minimize the context shifts. You also minimize the addictive nature of email. So if you have a single undifferentiated inbox into which everything comes, there's always a lottery ticket that could be scratched in there. And I agree that's very hard to resist. The uh, other side of that Janus coin is anxiety. So when you know you have a single undifferentiated inbox that's filling up with people waiting for you and you're not looking at your inbox, it makes you more anxious. So we get both addiction and anxiety by having a single inbox through which things come in without any structure and expectations are just ad hoc and everyone just wants their answer answer quick. You get addiction, but it's also really a misery generation machine. I wrote a whole chapter about the, the psychological reasons why that model makes human beings in particular Miserable. I mean, I think we all have this background hum of anxiety that is imposed by the way we work and is not fundamental. We could work in ways that would get rid of it. We're just used to it now. But that inbox always filling, ugh, that is, does not play well with uh, our social brains. Yeah, like, I, you know, I'll take a look at my inbox right now. I mean, even just, even just since we started... I have like about a hundred emails and most of them are just garbage. Like they're, it, cause it's, it's really hard to get rid of email. That's quasi spam. Cause it's, it's not quite spam. Maybe once in a hundred yeah. emails, I'll want to take a look at this one thing, but it just fills up my inbox and I have to spend part of my time just deleting useless emails. So I don't know what to do other than just not look at my email boxes, which is what I've been doing. But then that causes problems because people want to know why I'm not getting back to them. I'll get email. Yeah. A, a good chunk of my emails every day are, hey, are, are, are we good? <laughs> yeah. Not responding. Well, yeah. But what else are you going to get if it's uh, the hyperactive hive mind's ad hoc unstructured? Yeah. Right? It, it's like why there's this paradox when you, when you run a client-facing business. And, you know, I ran one of these when I was a, when I was a kid. I, I had a... a dot-com company during the first dot-com boom. So I was a high school kid in the 90s with a company, right? But uh, we, we did like, web development, web consulting, and stuff like this. But this was the 1990s, and I'm in high school, right? So that means uh, I don't have a laptop. Uh, I don't have a cell phone. That wasn't really something that people had back then. And so I was literally unavailable from whatever it was, 7 in the morning until like 4.30 uh, in the afternoon every day, right? Like there was no smartphones you could use to surreptitiously check email or something like this. So you would think this would be untenable. We had clients that had paid a lot of money. We had teams we were working with to do the development. Today, it would just be email back and forth all day long. We couldn't do it. So what did we do? Well, this was more popular back in the 90s, but we built out this, this client extranet. You could log into it with a password. There'd be a calendar. You could see what was happening each day when the deadlines were, there was a work diary blog so that you could see, okay, here's what happened today. Things are, things are, are, are going on. There was regularly scheduled check-in meetings. We had this whole thing designed so that, you know, 
you wouldn't need to reach us. And it worked perfectly, right? If, if, if clients had clear expectations and clear information, they were happy to not have to waste their time talking to you. It turns out the reason why clients bother people all the time is because they don't have a reasonable expectation that stuff is getting done. There's not enough structure. Like, look, I'm just, are we on it? What's happening here? What about this? I'm going to send you a ton of messages if I don't actually trust you to get things done. But if you structure it in such a way, expectations are clear. There's clarity. It turns out clarity is much more important than accessibility. Ah. And you can push that to an extreme like me in the 90s. You, I literally, you couldn't email me and yet we service tons of clients fine. So it's almost like email and, and email overuse has become a substitute for trust. And that trust is no longer uh, expected as much in communications because email has maybe inaccurately convinced us that it's a replacement for trust. So you don't have to have the burden of trust anymore because email supposedly yeah. band-aids that. Well, yeah. And it's really natural, right? So uh, it's very natural, very cheap, and very convenient. So like one of the big ideas is if there was just three of us, it was like me, you, and Jay, and we were in a field somewhere hunting, like the way we would communicate would just be ad hoc and unstructured. Like, of course it would be. I'd just be like, you know, uh, James, you go over there. James, you, Jay, you come over here. Hey, watch out for that mammoth over there. Like, let's let, we would just ad hoc back and forth unstructured. That's how we would coordinate. That's how humans have always coordinated because we've always been in very small groups that were synchronously present. It's the natural way that human beings coordinate. The problem with the way we work today is we email has allowed us to scale up this very natural thing to thousands of people, and it doesn't scale. I mean, that's why this is a problem that email invented, uh, is it was very natural for us to say, oh, great, now with all of these different people I work with, I can communicate the same way that I would naturally communicate if there was just two of us working on a project together in a garage, the way that humans have always communicated. And that's the easiest way to do it. It's convenient, it's flexible, it's also very cheap. You just buy one email server. You don't need bespoke applications. It's very easy, very convenient, very natural. So there's a reason why it's very popular. It just doesn't scale. When I have 20 clients and 30 people in my organization and 17 vendors, and that's starting to get pretty crowded in this metaphorical savanna where we're you know, hunting the mammoth. It's too many people to have this ad hoc back and forth. Look, so that, that's part of the paradox. It works with small groups of people. It just doesn't work once you get more. Let's, let's take that example, though, where you have like 30 clients and, and also you have a team of people and you have all these things. Do you kind of say, okay, this part of the day is we're not going to do emails? Do you, do you structure it that way or do you try to structure it that way? You got to go deeper. See, that's the problem. If you, if you stay just at the level of what is our interaction with our inbox, not how does email actually play a role in organizing our work, uh, the problem's not going to be fixed. This is why Email Free Friday has always failed. Uh, it's why batching emails is not a reasonable approach. It's why the Tim Ferriss autoresponder fell out of favor. Uh, it just didn't work to say, I'm just going to check email at the end of the day because like, well, wait a second, Tim, like in our company, email is how we do everything. So if you're not on email till five, actually nothing gets done. So in that example, I would say we have to get down to the basics of what are the different things we do? What are your responsibilities? What are your roles? What are your processes? We need alternatives. We need to specify, here's how we deal with client check-ins. Here's how we deal with accounts receivable. Here's how we deal with uh, putting together marketing memoranda. Whatever the things are, we need processes that specify how the information comes in, how we coordinate, how we execute. Because it's, it's in the absence of that that we fall back on email. I think that's the number one problem in fixing this problem. Uh, when I talk to C-suite types, like for example, they always use the word norms. They're so convinced that we're just like a few norm tweaks away from a productivity nirvana. If only we could just have a better norm about expectations for response time 
we'd be all set. And I always say, no, the problem is your whole company depends on very fast response times. You don't have an alternative way for this work to get done. You have to have an alternative way for this work to get done, or we will inexorably be drawn back to constant communication and pay all those prices. And so uh, let, let, let's bring social media into this for a second. And, and I know the, that your book is focused more on the workplace and email, but your work in general has, has covered all of these topics. A lot of people are, they realize they're addicted to social media and that that is harming their work. Um, but I, but similar to what you're saying about email, I don't think it's good enough to just say, okay, I am cutting social media cold, or I'm only looking at Twitter for a half hour in the morning. I, I don't think addictions work that way because you need this, you're, you're desperate for this dopamine hit and you're going to get it one way or the other. You can't just sort of like use willpower to get rid of an addiction, uh, which is why it, it you know, there's entire organizations and rehab facilities and so on set up for other addictions, but not so much for, for social media. So what's, what's yeah. a solution there? Like what, what's kind of yeah. steps people could take? And again, the idea is not necessarily to avoid social media, but to understand that you're going to be a lot more productive and happier if you can deal with this issue. Yeah. Well, social media is both easier and harder. This issue is both easier and harder than the email problem. It's easier in the sense that it's very hard to just unilaterally completely solve the email problem if you work for a big company because the issue is the underlying workflows in your company. And until you change those, uh, it's hard to improve your relationship. Now, there's a lot of things you can do as an individual if you create your own processes to make it better. But fundamentally, it's an organizational problem. I hate that I keep referencing New Yorker articles. It's just that I've, I've pulled a lot of ideas from this book into the New Yorker over this past year. So I had this article recently called The Rise and Fall of Getting Things Done. I'm pointing these out just so it's like an easier way to get at these ideas than having to leaf through the book. And like the core idea there was uh, we can't fix these issues in the workplace as individuals. Like the organizations have to overhaul things. Okay, so social media is easier because you can fix the problem yourself. Your relationship with social media is your own relationship. You have full autonomy there. It's harder, however, because you also have billions of dollars that have been invested to try to perpetuate an addictive relationship. Like Microsoft isn't trying to get you addicted to Microsoft Outlook. The fact that you have to use Outlook all the time is because of your, your company's work practices, right? They don't care. They don't make more money. They sell this many seats. It's not by minutes used. But social media, a ton of money has been invested to get you to keep looking at it. So it's easier because you have autonomy. It's harder because it's more engineered to be addictive. The solution to this is uh, actually a, a book I wrote in between the last time we talked and now that came out in 2019 was called Digital Minimalism. And it focused really on technology in your personal life and social media in particular. And one of the big ideas from that book was if you come at social media use reduction from a negative reduction standpoint, like I'm using this too much, I don't like that, I want to use it less, it's not very sustainable. What seemed to work more and I'm basing this off an experiment I ran with 1,600 volunteers where we, we, we went through this process, is to have a positive enhancing perspective. And so, so what I had people do, just to make this more concrete, is take 30 days. And during these 30 days, take a break from all of these sort of personal, like non-necessary for your work tools like social media and streaming video, et cetera. During those 30 days, I had them very aggressively through reflection and experimentation, really get in touch with their values. Like, what's really important to me? What do I want to spend my time doing? What do I want to do with my life, especially outside of work? Like, what type of person do I want to be? And then at the end of the 30 days, they rebuilt their digital habits from scratch. But this time they did it just to, to amplify the things that they identified as being important. 
So they're like, look, I'm an artist. And so I need Instagram to get creative inspiration from other artists, you know. Uh, so I will use Instagram. But now because I know why I'm using it to get creative inspiration, I can very easily put rules that make sense. Like I don't need it on my phone. I'll do it on my computer. I'll do it twice a week. It's like a TV show I watch. But was it sustainable or did it fall apart the second they got a bad comment on something and then suddenly they got down the rabbit hole? Well, it was much more sustainable. So what I found is if, if, if you have a positive vision, if I want my life to be this, and your, your habits for your tools support a positive vision, that's much more sustainable than if your approach is, I don't like this bad thing. I think Twitter is bad. I spend too much time on it. I want to spend less time on Twitter. That, that degrades much more rapidly because you're like, yeah, in general, I want to spend less time, but I am bored right now, or I want to know what's going on with whatever, and you're right back in it. Because you know, fighting back against the negative reduction is very weak, but if you're trying to instead fight for a positive image, it was much stronger. Now, that being said, the people who did this exercise would have to revisit it two or three times a year, right? You're constantly having to revisit it. Wait, whoa, 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 what's happened here? Why am I on Twitter all the time? No, no, no. What is my vision of what I want my life to be about? What tools support that vision? What are my rules for using these tools to support that vision? Good, let's go. And like when I went through that exercise, I have no social media accounts. Now, that's a little bit out on the extreme, but it's not that extreme of a response if you take this positive approach. You know, when I did this exercise in my own life, uh, there weren't things I valued that I would look to particular social media tools and be like, that's a big boost to it. And so it's been very sustainable for me because I'm focused on this positive thing. I want to keep this positive vision of my life going as opposed to I use this too much, I want to reduce it. And it has not been that hard to avoid it. So I mean, that's the one lesson I learned is work backwards from what you want your life to be like and how tools fit into that, that's much more sustainable than identify what you don't like about tools and try to reduce it. So I'm going to try to convince you to use social media and let's see what happens. So you create content. You have these New Yorker articles. You have these books. Your, your, your books go on bestseller list. You have an audience of people who want to hear what your opinion is. Twitter is a great way, for instance, to, and Instagram as well, but let's just focus on Twitter for a second. Twitter is a great way to spread these messages and get people reading your message who maybe haven't even heard of you before because of somebody who has heard of you and who likes one particular message you're spreading on Twitter will retweet it and others will retweet it and people who don't know you will say, oh, who's this guy, Cal Newport? I like what he's saying, I'm gonna follow him. And then they start seeing your other messages and so on. So this could be a, a very productive tool for you from a marketing perspective and also even from a communication perspective. So on Twitter, there might be other people engaged in similar processes of discovery about what you're interested in and you could exchange, you could find them and and exchange notes with them and and build a community with them. Right, but but I mean I could also argue that uh, another known strategy that helps build audiences is to speak all the time, right? That's certainly a, an old author trick. But when you speak, you speak to 100 people and when you tweet, you're tweeting to 200,000 people. Right, but you you have a more intense engagement with them and then they they all buy the book and that spreads. So that's an old strategy or if like you're in the political sphere become a regular on cable news, now you have a brand. Like these are these are older kind of pre-social media strategies. Uh, all of them have benefits, right? They also all have costs. I don't do any of those either. So the way I come at it is not that is there some potential benefit. It's is there a benefit there that I think is like the best way to use technology to amplify something I care about? I do want my ideas to spread. I think they do a pretty good job of spreading. I don't see there being a big enough advantage if I'm the one on Twitter tweeting that that's going to make a, a huge difference. I don't know that I would have a much bigger audience. Maybe I would, but maybe I'd be producing a lot less. And I know for sure I'd be a lot less happy 
because I think Twitter, especially in recent years, has become a misery creation machine. Um, and so when I do this calculus, it's like, look, here's things I care about. I think I'm doing them at a high level. I think it's impactful. I think I, 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 I think I enjoy it. And I have a lot of autonomy over my time. I mean, I, when I did this calculus with book writing, like one of the things I found is that it's actually less important that the book author is themselves talking about themselves than it is that people are using whatever the tools are to talk about the person, right? Like that's one of the misunderstandings of social media is like you saying out pithy things on, on Twitter is probably much less impactful than people spreading things written about you or positive things about you on Twitter among themselves, right? That it, it amplifies people talking about you is more important than you amplifying your voice talking about yourself. But more importantly, I don't trust myself on those tools. I think the misery and the distraction would far outweigh whatever benefit it would have in terms of, I mean, I guess it would percolate down the book sales. Like I'm not quite sure even how to uh, quantify the, the metric. So like, I'm happy with that. Like, like, I think when a book comes out, like for instance, some of my books I publish traditionally, some I self-publish. And I, particularly when I self-publish, I'm the only one who releases the information that my book has now been published. And so Twitter and social media become useful for that. Like I am able to inform my readers, hey, I just had a book come out and, and I can kind of yeah. prep them weeks in advance. Hey, on this date, my book's coming out, you know, and so yeah. So that it provides that useful role for me, sure. which I don't know how I would replace, except for going on podcast. Podcast, yeah. Well, yeah, but like your like your podcast probably plays a has a similar impact, if not larger, but a, a much less sort of distracting toll. I mean, look, and I, I don't mean to argue that people shouldn't use these tools. The content creator shouldn't use them. I'm just I'm going through like even the idea that it's possible that someone like me comes up with the answer that I'm not going to use it, I think that's surprising enough for people that it's worth getting into how that's even possible. But like when it comes to Twitter, I'm, I'm kind of throwing out numbers, but let me know if you think this is about accurate. You know, I think the, the impact of 200,000 Twitter followers in terms of your uh, book sales is 3,000 3, books. Tops. I, I, An I extra three thousand bucks every week. I would say it's probably even less because some of those three thousand would have bought the book anyway. And yeah. I, a, I think the number is less than three thousand. Let's say it's two thousand, yeah. but I'm making this up. I don't really know. But let's say it's two thousand because three thousand sounds high. Uh, I would say half of those or more would have bought the book anyway. Those are the those yeah. are the people who are uh, have read you enough that they would have known without Twitter that you know it's only 1% of your followers. 1% of your followers is going to know what, what's going on in your life without being informed via Twitter about it. So, yeah, you know, of those 2,000, 50% or more probably would have gotten the yeah. book anyway. So then maybe the actual impact is more like 1,000 or less. So I, I agree right. with you. And I just know the one benefit, so again, for the past three and a half months, it's not like I've eliminated Twitter completely, but I've stopped using it for the first time in 10 years. And... The impact on me was that the biggest impact was that I stopped interacting with people who were negative about me or or the message I was trying to impart or whatever. Because any interactions with someone who is negative, that's just completely time and mental energy just flushed down some social media toilet. Like it's there is absolutely no value. And and yet you th somehow the brain thinks those are real interactions and conversations that you need to have. Like someone in the tribe is 
saying yeah. negative things about me, I need to respond. And that's when you're addicted to these things, you feel like you have to respond because that person, you feel that person's right in front of you, trashing you, and then everyone is seeing it. So you have to respond to it. Yeah. Well, we have a mutual friend, I think, uh, the comedian Jamie Kilstein, who I, I yeah. grew up with. You know, we, we played oh, a yeah. band together. Yeah, yeah, I've known him forever. Um, but I remember him talking about what it was like Twitter, especially when he was going through a period where he was being attacked a lot. And he said uh, it physically felt identical leaving his apartment to imminent physical attack was coming. Like he was, that was the state his body was in. Yeah. Is like, I don't know if they're going to come from here or there, but pretty soon the the club is going to hit you in the back of the head. You know, our mind doesn't know about the size of audiences. It doesn't know about anonymity. It doesn't know about the fact that there's, you know, a billion users on Twitter. It just can't sort that out. So yeah, I think that's a huge cost. The misery, the anxiety, the upsetness that occurs, especially once you are semi-well-known and interacting with people on Twitter, I think we vastly underestimate the impact of that on our productivity and emotional well-being. I mean, if I told you like, look, I have this tool. It's like a, a TV that has like a really good show on it. It's really entertaining. Here's the catch. Like a few times a day, someone's going to jump through your window and kick you in the groin. And you're not, but otherwise it's like a really fun, you know, the shows on it are really fun. It's like, you know, friends or something. You'd be like, I, I don't care. <laughs> like, I, I'm not going to watch friends if I'm going to get kicked in the groin you know, three or four times a day. But that's kind of what Twitter offers. Like it's a, I meet interesting people. Uh, I can kind of spread the word, but three or four times a day, I'm going to get, oh, that dagger, you know? Yeah. It's like, do better, period. And you're like, but, but, uh, and is that trade-off, I don't think we're balanced. Uh, well, not you and I, you're doing a great job. I'm doing a great so, job. But I think a lot of people are not balancing that trade-off. Well, properly. the only reason I had to do this is that it was getting so negative. I could definitely feel the misery that I just yeah. stopped going on it. And it wasn't like a conscious decision. Even I just, I wasn't being, I wasn't getting any reward for going on it. So I stopped using it and yeah. my life has been significantly better as a result. I don't know if I'll ever go back to, to using social media the, the same way. I wanted to cover yeah. just real briefly also that, you know, so Scott Young has been on the podcast uh, to talk about his book, ultra learning. And earlier on, I remember I, I had him on when um, he finished his uh, MIT computer science degree in 10 months, a four-year degree finished in 10 months just by doing the online courses. And now you guys together have a course on ultra learning. And this is something I've, I've been really fascinated by for decades. And, uh, I just wrote a book about it called skip the line and I've switched careers and interests a lot. And the problem with switching a career and switching interests is that you have to get good enough quickly so that you could monetize it or else you just won't have the time really to focus on your, your interest. But so, so it requires some aspect of ultra learning. And I, I did, dived heavily into, you know, learning the nuances of the, the 10,000 hour rule. I talked to dozens of people on, on the podcast and so on. Uh, tell me a little about your, your course. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm excited for skip the line. I mean, as you can tell from like the course and my, my friendship with Scott, I love these topics. Uh, so yeah, we did a course called Life of Focus, um, which it, we, we opened it up a few times uh, a few times a year. So it'll probably be opening up again soon. But there was uh, three parts to it. So we had focused uh, mind, we had focused life, and we had focused work. And they're, they're all kind of based on our books. So you had like a focused work month, which is all about redesigning the way you work to have more uninterrupted time, more deep work it. There's the focus life, which is like this digital minimalism stuff I was just telling you about. How do you uh, 
rebuild from scratch a relationship to your tools like social media and streaming video, et cetera, video games, so that it's uh, supporting a good life and not distracting you. And then Focused Mind is built directly on ultra learning. It's like, okay, how do you learn really hard things fast? And then like over a period of a month, you actually go through, you, you choose a project, and we sort of walk you through it and you get used to how you do this, how you figure out what to work on, how to practice, how to get the feedback, how to get a good return on your energy investment. You know, you got to focus deliberately on the things that really matter. More generally though, and I'm sure this is in your book, I think this is something that people, uh, one of the side effects of a culture of constant distraction is that to learn something complicated requires intense focus. Like it's The way it actually works at the neurological level is you have to actually be through intense concentration pushing yourself past where you're comfortable. So actually getting these new neural circuits to fire in the right way, it takes a lot of concentration to do the right thing. You're trying to push your understanding on you know, the statistical package or whatever it is. Through that stretch, you uh, harden those circuits and it gets easier. Without the stretch, you can't learn things. And if you're not comfortable with like a cognitive stretch, like just like a, an athlete is very, very comfortable with being very winded or having their muscles be very sore from a, from a workout routine. If you're not comfortable with just... I this hurts, it's hard, but I'm concentrating anyways. It's very difficult to learn things fast. And nothing makes you softer when it comes to that than having taught your brain that every time you're a little bit bored, you get a shiny treat, algorithmically optimized distraction. Yeah. The, 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 I always look at my phone when I'm a little bit bored. I think that's the cognitive equivalent of being an athlete that smokes. Like when it comes time to now I need to concentrate really hard. I don't really understand integrals. I got to understand it. And I'm going to have to concentrate to stretch past where I'm comfortable. If you look at your phone or email or something, every time you're a little bit bored, it's like the smoker's lungs trying to run the mile. It's just like your mind can't do it. You know, and so I think that's a place where the rubber hits the road. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I, in the book, I focus on ways to basically not quite skip the 10,000 hour rule, but to, um, shortcut is also the wrong word. But basically, alternatives to the ten thousand hour rule to to learn something extremely quickly, and yeah. uh, definitely avoiding social media helps. You know, I I read somewhere, and it might have even been something you wrote that even if you have a cell phone on a table at dinner, let's say you go out to dinner with friends, if you have a smartphone on the table and it's face down, so you're not going to look at it, but it's just there it's distracting to everybody on the table. Like they won't be able to focus on you as much. Yeah. That, that, that just, just the presence of it does, uh, that does reduce everything, basically. Your cognitive, cognitive capacities, the distractibility. Uh, we, we're playing really fast and loose with our brains right now at exactly the time that our brains are how we make a living. You know, uh, I just think in like ancient Sparta, where your athletic battle proudness was everything, you probably were very careful about what you ate and, and how you trained because like your whole society and economy depended on you being able to go and beat the, the Athenians in a war. Well, right now, our superpowers, our brains, our ability to think, our ability to learn new systems and learn new ideas and be creative and produce things. And we completely take for granted that instrument. And I guess because it's not that visible. Like we can't see your brain grow a gut or something like you can when it comes to your, your right. physical activities. But I got to tell you, people who take this stuff seriously, take this stuff seriously. If you look at, for example, uh, hedge fund managers, you know, who, regardless of what you think about them today, that is a, a group of people which have been interesting to me because they can quantify dollar and cents, a, the cost 
of being distracted and their brain not being sharp. And you see a lot of innovation among them, right? That's where there's there's a whole subculture of hedge fund managers that use this particular flip phone, Dodoro, uh, because the distraction of a smartphone could be difference in ten million dollars net this month, right? That's where you know the uh, the the I'm forgetting his name, but the searching for Bobby Fisher, uh, Josh Josh Waitskin, right? Like part of his consulting practice was actually like basically working with big finance people and helping them really learn how to focus their brain and not be distracted and think really sharply the way he had to win chess games because it really made a big difference. So uh, I saw that in the theory group at MIT. Your ability to stare at a whiteboard for three hours was a tier one skill. It was like how fast you could run a, a 440 if you were a football player or something like that. So there's these, these pockets of really high intellectual achieving pieces of society where people really care a lot about what's going in my brain, how am I taking care of my brain, how well can I think, how can I sharpen that? I just generally think that that circle should be way wider than hedge fund managers and you know theoretical computer scientists that for huge swaths of our economy, people would be much more productive and happy and effective you know, if they took their cognitive health as seriously as they did their physical health. Well, what would be an interesting experiment here? Like one interesting experiment might be for every email you get to sort of put a time on it, a time limit on it where you could say, okay, maybe I have to respond to this within five seconds in order for this email to have the correct impact on my life. But with most emails, it's probably, okay, I have to respond to this within 24 hours or, or 48 hours or a week in order for it to have this, the, the, the exact same impact as if I responded in five seconds. And I, I bet you in most cases, it's not five seconds. It's most cases, it's like about four or five days that you need to respond to some interruption. And then that could kind of help you determine like, okay, well, during the day, I obviously don't need to have my phone on me uh, or check emails because I already know 99% of my emails don't need to be responded to within, you know, four days. Even like, uh, yeah. even like, well, people, people say, oh, I need to take my phone out because I have kids. What if one of my kids gets hit by a car? I always say, by the time they got hit by the car, there's nothing you could do. <laughs> like, even if you get the yeah. email, it's not like you're going to prevent them from getting hit by the car. You could go to the hospital and sit in the waiting room, and that's important, and, you know, express support, but they might be knocked out anyway or in surgery or whatever. Even something that's so critical as that, you don't really need to respond or, or see that email immediately. <laughs> Right, right. Well, it's a bad expected value calculation. <laughs> you and I grew up in a period where, you know, if our parents were away uh, and we're home with a babysitter, they didn't have phones. There'd be no way to reach them. Or if we were at school, there was no way to reach them. They, if they were away from the office and uh, nothing bad ever happened. So your expected value of the, there is going to be really low. You have this whole cost of having the phone with you all the time for a very minuscule chance. Here's a second exercise I would suggest. For a period of time, every email that comes into your inbox write down, like identify what is the general process that this email is related to, right? Is it, uh, if it's like spam mail or something like that, like, well, this is related to my, like, uh, I receive information from the world through newsletters processes, right? Um, is it from a client trying to check in on something? This is through my client's maintenance process. Like actually say, well, what's the process this thing is associated with? And just watch this list grow. And then you're confronted with like, I guess these are all the different processes in my life for which right now email communication is playing a role. And then you can go through this list and be like, okay, which of these are important to me and which aren't? So like right away, 
you can, there's, there, once you actually write it down as a name, you're like, I don't really need to have that as a process that I spend time on and try to optimize. I just don't need to do that type of thing. So you, you get rid of a lot of those things. And then with what's left, you could think, is there a better way to do that than to just send messages back and forth to just rock and roll? And there's something about just assigning things to processes that you come away after doing this for one workday with like a much clearer view of like, oh, here are the seven things I mainly do. And here's eight other things that I am doing that I shouldn't be. And it's so much easier than to be like, okay, so let me just like unsubscribe from these and just stop doing this work and stop t- saying yes to coffees because none of that stuff's that, that's not the right way to do it. And these up here, let me, uh, let me optimize, right? That's a good exercise because even like, let's say newsletters with information, all right, you subscribe to that newsletter for a reason. You want to get information about X, Y, or Z. But I even realized over the past couple of months that, okay, by not reading this email, I'm not going to get this information. And that was fine too. <laughs> Because there's only so much yeah. information. I'm really that. I thought I was like yes. very interested in this information, but you know, if it's going to crowd away other information that's more useful or interesting to me right now, this moment, I don't really need it. I can keep it in my inbox somewhere, but I don't really need to look at it until I need to look at it. Yeah. Or if you have a name for it, like, okay, the process that this newsletter is a part of is the, I like to be up to speed on what interesting people are up to. Once you recognize that's the process, you can ask the question of, well, what's the best way to do it? You might realize like, oh, maybe the best way to do this for me is not to subscribe to 20 random email newsletters. Maybe I, I need to subscribe to one magazine that comes weekly and I read it Saturday morning at like my favorite coffee shop and I have a little ritual around it. And it's still scratching that itch of like, you know, I'm reading Harper's instead of 17 email newsletters or whatever. Um, Or, okay, I I like what these people have to say, but what I do is I have an iPad and I go to like this restaurant I like and I have their six sites bookmarked. And it's a one hour ritual with coffee and I'm not subscribed to mail list. Like once you have a name, like this is the process and this is the goal, you can ask what's the best way if I want this process in my life, what, what's the best way to actually implement it? And you know, nine times out of 10, you realize the way you're currently servicing that important process in your life is very ad hoc and not very efficient. So it's like, once you have a name for it, you realize there's a ton of other ways to solve the same problem, ways that have much smaller footprints on your life. Yeah, this is also interesting. And, and, and again, I've been directly experiencing this almost by coincidence the past few months. So I'm glad you wrote this book, A World Without Email. And it goes along really nicely if, if people haven't read it with your book, uh, Deep Work, Digital Minimalism, So Good They Can't Ignore You. And I'm really curious about your, your course on focus and ultra learning. We should, we should talk again about, about that at some point. But Cal Newport, author of A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload, New York Times bestselling author of Digital Minimalism and Deep Work. Thanks once again for coming on the podcast. Thanks, James. I enjoyed it. Me too. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.